You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. But I will read Daniel 1, verse 1, right through to the end of the chapter. The entirety of Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, some of the vessels of the house of the Lord. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. And of the wine that he drank, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belt to Shazar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to see to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. King spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better 
than all the magicians and enchanters that were all in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's have prayer together. Oh God in heaven, we beseech you and ask that your spirit would move among us to convict of sin and save sinners and strengthen and encourage your people this morning. We pray, Father, that you would teach us what you want us to know. You teach us to trust you, and you would anoint the hearing and preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. So we are in the book of Daniel. I introduced that book last week. Daniel's message, as I noted, is that in a dark, seemingly unstable world, God orchestrates the macro and micro events. He orchestrates the macro events. When it looks like things are spinning out of control, God is in control of the political realm. Everything that's taking place within politics, geopolitically, God is in control. And God orchestrates the micro events, the little wee minute things in your life. God is in control of them. He cares about all of those things, and he is interceding on behalf of his people. Now today, as we look at this text, the first chapter of Daniel, you should be encouraged. I hope you will leave the service encouraged this morning. When Satan seizes power to control God's people, God preserves his people. That's the message today. Satan takes power, and Satan attempts to use that power to control God's people, and then God preserves his people. It's the message. It's that simple. It looks like the lights are going out. It looks like Satan is taking over everything, and then all of a sudden you see that God is preserving his people. And this is illustrated in the life of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, our temptation is to compromise for self-preservation. Many of you, if you're put in a high-pressure situation and the people that are in charge of you or what you're doing are satanic and they're trying to control you and force you to compromise, your temptation will always be to compromise for the sake of self-preservation. But we should, in all things, remain resolved, uncompromised, trusting in God, because God will preserve us. We don't need to practice self-preservation or worry about self-preservation, because when we commend ourselves to God, if he so desires, he will be the one who preserves us. You can trust him as you preserve your integrity. You can trust him to preserve you. Here's my outline today. And I'll give you three points. The text hinges on three turns of events. Verses 1 through 7, we see Nebuchadnezzar reaches out for God's people. He's trying to control God's people. This is what tyrants do. They try to get the levers of power satanically in order to get a hold of God's people. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar does in verses 1 through 7. He reaches out to take a hold of God's people. In verses 8 through 10... God's people, or God's man specifically, Daniel, resists. They resist. And then, thirdly, in verses 11 through 21, God preserves his people. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar reaches for God's people. Number two, God's people resist. Number three, God preserves his people. When Satan seizes power, when he takes power to control God's people, God preserves his people. This is the way it works. 
You don't need to worry about self-preservation. You need to worry about preserving your own integrity and trust yourself to be preserved by God. God preserves his people when Satan takes control of the levers of power in order to control God's people. Don't compromise. That's not the way forward. Christians need to be inflexible and uncompromising, and you can trust in God. Trust him. God's trustworthy. He's one who should be trusted. Let's look at my first point this morning, verses 1 through 7. Nebuchadnezzar reaches for God's people. This point's going to take a while to develop. It's by far the longest point of my sermon. But it's, uh, what I'm doing, I'm setting the table and explaining the scene of what's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar is in power. He's in the ascent. He's ascending. And Israel, God's people, are in decline. Nebuchadnezzar is ascending. He has power. And God's people are in decline. Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, was the ancient Near Eastern superpower. He was the power king of Babylon. He ruled in Babylon. And he established his power, or at least his forebearer established his power in 605 B.C. And he established his power, or his forebearer established his power by defeating the Egyptians in 605 B.C., and when he defeated his, the Egyptians, it was a strategic defeat, which then gained him supremacy over the Assyrians, who up until that point were reigning supreme. So by 605, the Babylonians were in charge. They were the global superpower, at least in the ancient Near East. 605 and then 587, about 18 years later, Nebuchadnezzar reaches into Israel and destroys Jerusalem and takes the best people out of Israel into Babylon, sacks the temple, Jerusalem's reduced to rubble. Nebuchadnezzar, his power is increasing. Israel's power is decreasing. Nebuchadnezzar's prominence and glory is increasing. Israel's power is decreasing. Do you ever feel like you live in a world like that? Where the power of the wicked, the glory of the wicked is increasing, and the righteous are losing their glory and power? Well, that's the world that Daniel lived in. The wicked were increasing in power, the righteous were decreasing in power. And it's worse than that. You look at verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, so let's just stop there, Jehoiakim the last one before Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, the last king of Judah before Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, he was a corrupt king. So he was the one who um, killed the prophet Uriah, or Uzziah. And he destroyed Jeremiah's prophecy. He, he ripped up Jeremiah's prophecy and threw it into the fire. And he was an idolater. So you have the dominance, the global superpower is totally pagan, it's totally heathen, against God, no knowledge of God. And then the power that should have a knowledge of God inside Jerusalem is corrupt to the core. Corrupt traitors, and the wealth of Jerusalem has been depleted. It's the godly have now for generations witnessed the decline of Israel. In the southern kingdom, they're totally, the southern kingdom is degenerate. The southern kingdom has corrupt church, corrupt state. 
There's no one to look to for guidance, really. The prophets are speaking from the outside into the inside. There's nobody on the inside of power that has any semblance of righteousness really left or wisdom. They've been in economic decline for generations. They've been completely depleted economically, and they are culturally debased. So the people are, the people of God are humiliated at this point in history, and their humiliation has been on the rise where the power of, perceived power of Satan has been on the, the ascent. Satan's taking ground. And he's taking ground at the expense of the godly. And so you have this corrupt king in Jerusalem, corrupt establishment in Jerusalem, and then Nebuchadnezzar, the complete pagan superpower, goes into Jerusalem and sacks it. 587 BC. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Satan is taking ground. You're supposed to be getting the picture of a dark existence. There's nothing to be encouraged to encourage you at this point as far as what your eyes can see. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just sack Jerusalem, but he steals the valuables out of Jerusalem's temple. Satan is on the move here. Look at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Nebuchadnezzar sacks Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar sends his armies into the temple. He takes God's merchandise, basically the crown jewels of the temple. He brings them into the temple of Babylon, into this pagan temple, where the wealth of God's people is now in the pagan temple. So I don't know whether you've ever walked around in our communities in Ontario and you've seen the old church buildings that generations ago had built and you lament over the fact that they've been handed over to the godless. Generations ago, people sacrificed to build those buildings. And now godless people are running them. They're being turned into condominiums or they're being turned into restaurants or theaters or handed over to mosques or Sikh temples. So if you've ever experienced a level of lamentation, if you've, as you've witnessed that, you can kind of gather what's going on in Israel at this time is the wealth that had been accumulated was really God's money, God's wealth, was now taken and had been given to a, a, a false religion, a false God, and the God of a, a false, uh, an idol, and the word Shinar there in verse 2 is important for us to note. To the land of Shinar, that's reminiscent of Genesis 10, the first tyrant that we know after the flood. And in Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10, I'll just read it, where it says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. The word mighty man there could be a tyrant on the earth. He was a mighty hunter. The tyrant kings were hunters. The the godly kings were shepherd kings. He was a hunter. He, he was a hunter. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 9. Therefore, to Sid, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. Shinar, Daniel 1, verse 2. Shinar is the land of Babel. 
It's where they built the Tower of Babel. It's where the first tyrant king was. And so, so what do we have the picture of here? The free people of God are being depleted and their resources are being funneled into the hands of tyrants. They're being pillaged. Israel had been on the decline for a while. Nebuchadnezzar finally sacked Jerusalem, stole the money out of the temple, and now it has gone to the land of Shinar, the land of the first tyrant, the land of tyrants. The evil kings are ruling. Satan is taking ground. And it gets worse. Satan takes more ground. Nebuchadnezzar stole Israel's best young people. Verse 3, and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Now, let's just pause there. I need to take a little rabbit trail because this word eunuch is going to come up again and again. And it says that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had a eunuch who was his right-hand man who was doing some of his work and some of his bidding here. Now, some translations will translate that word eunuch. They'll translate it satrap, which simply means an ancient Near Eastern governor or official. And in the Hebrew language, the word that can be translated eunuch can also be translated governor or satrap so that it has a wide semantic range. And so just because it says eunuch doesn't mean it's a castrated male. It might be, it might not be. But if you look at the book of Genesis, where you had a man by the name of Potiphar, who was a governor under Pharaoh, the same word is used to translate his position in government. But he wasn't a eunuch. He wasn't a castrated male. Because we know he wasn't a castrated male because he had a wife. Castrated males don't get married. So some people will take this and they'll try to argue that Daniel himself was a eunuch because he was put in charge of a eunuch. Well, first of all, it's debated whether or not this is even a castrated male, and an accurate translation could be, could be simply satrap. But then if you go down to verse 4, it says that Daniel was on the, among the youths without blemish. The word without blemish there, a youth without blemish, is, is borrowing. That's language that you find in Leviticus to describe what priests are supposed to be. The priests were to, supposed to be men without blemish. And one of the ways that they were men without blemish is they weren't castrated. And so, in fact, the text seems to indicate that Daniel was not a castrated male, although some would say that he is. And beyond that, it's not even certain whether the chief... Uh, that was underneath Nebuchadnezzar, Ashpenaz, was even a castrated male. It simply could translate satrap, and that's how I'll use the term from here forward in this text, a satrap, a governor, an eastern governor underneath the king. So that's the little rabbit trail to clear away some fog on that. But regardless, Nebuchadnezzar had stolen the Jerusalem. He'd stolen the gold of the temple, and now he was stealing the best men from Jerusalem. Then the king commanded, verse 3, Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, 
both of the royal family and of the nobility. The royal family and nobility, the best people of Israel, are now being taken into the king's court. He's kidnapping him. He's man-stealing them. What's Satan doing? He's taking ground. He's corrupted the Israeli, the Jewish government. He's corrupted the Jewish priesthood. Jerusalem has been sacked. Not only has Jerusalem been sacked, the gold's been taken from the temple and put into a godless heathen temple. And now the best men of Jerusalem are being stolen and put into the service of this satanic king, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 4 tells us how good, of, how good these young men were, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. These were good-looking, gifted with intelligent, and cultured men. The best youth that Jerusalem had to offer. Well-educated, handsome, and cultured. And Satan takes them and puts them into the king's palace, the satanic king's palace. And not only does he take them to put them into the satanic king's palace, but the satanic king is now going to take these youths and he's going to spend three years brainwashing them. Look at verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. The king is going to re-educate them into the way of the Chaldeans, the way of the Babylonians. So essentially what the king is doing is he's taking the most promising youth of Jerusalem who would have been educated in the ways of the Lord and he's going to give them a public education. He's sending them to public school for three years. Or for those of you who are beyond your education years, he's sending them to sensitivity training. So they can, be learn, they can learn to become sensitive to the sinful ways of Babylon. Public school and sensitivity training, in other words, three years of brainwashing. Satan's taking ground. He's taking ground. And not only does Satan take Jerusalem, and not only does Satan take the gold from the temple, not only does Satan take the best men from Jerusalem, not only is Satan going to send them to brainwashing school for three years, but the satanic king is going to rename them. Verse 6 and 7. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribes of Judah. Now, look at the names for a minute. Slow down and look at the names. These are the Daniel and his three friends. Daniel. You see, do you see the word, the two letters E-L at the end of his name? That's the Hebrew word for God, L. So he has the, the word for God at the end of his name. And then you look at Hananiah. Anytime you see a Hebrew word with the, with the phrase Yah in it, whether it's I-A-H or J-A-H, H, that's the proper name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah. So Daniel has God in his name, Hananiah has Yahweh in his name, and then we get to, what's the next one? Mishael, what do you see there? El, God is in his name. And Azariah, what do you see there? 
the proper name of God, Yahweh, or Jehovah, is in his name. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Azariah, and he takes them into his royal court, and he gives them new names. Look what it says, verse 7. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. John Gill says that each one of these new names that they were given contained the name of a foreign deity, a deity that would have been native to the land of Babylon, the name of a Babylonian idol. You even look at the name Belshazzar. What do you see in there? Baal in the first three letters. The idol of Baal. Shadrach would be, there'd be a god that was named Rak, apparently, Mesh, and then Nego from Abednego. And so these were all the names of foreign gods. Do you understand what's going on? This is, this, is, this is conversion. Nebuchadnezzar is forcibly converting these men to his religion. So he's taken Jerusalem, he's pillaged the temple, he's put the gold into the temple of his God. He's taking the best men of Jerusalem, he's brought them into his royal courts, he's going to give them three years of public school to brainwash them. And then not only is he going to brainwash them for three years... But beyond that, he's changing their names, so there's no semblance of a Hebrew name there. And by the way, if you, if you name, change someone's name, what are you declaring about that person's relationship to you? You're declaring that you own them. That's your slave. You have ownership. It's like branding them. So Nebuchadnezzar is Satan's servant, and Satan keeps taking ground. One step at a time, Satan keeps taking what is God's. What is God's? But, but let's tease this out a little bit more. He's got Jerusalem. He's got the gold of the temple. He's got the best people. This is totalitarian ownership of all. And Israel, by this point in history, even before the Babylonian invasion, was demoralized by degeneracy, economic decline, and cultural debasement. So if you were godly in Jerusalem, you felt almost like the godly feel today. Sin is being rubbed in your face. The people who should be protecting you, who are in leadership, are depleting your nation's resources and making your life more miserable where they should be enhancing human flourishing. And it's starting to fall apart. The wheels are coming off the apple cart, the trolley. Grease trails to help. And what happens when a community starts to degenerate? When it's depleted economically, the people get their focus off God, and culturally it's debased. What happens? Well, I'll tell you what happens. Does downtown Kitchener look different today than it did 25 years ago? That's what happens. Things get dirtier. There's bums on the street. You know, you, you don't know whether it's safe to walk at night. The smell of marijuana is in the air. It's, it's a totally different environment than it was three decades ago, two decades ago even. And so how do you think Jerusalem looked at this point? Weeds in the sidewalks, depleted buildings, beggars, vagrants, economic hardship, 
It was degenerate. It was falling apart. And so you have these youths who've grown up in culturally and economically depressed Jerusalem that was the city of God, who watched Jerusalem be pillaged and ransacked, see that the gold is taken from Jehovah's temple and put into the temple in Babylon of the false god, and they are stolen themselves and brought into the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar. Their names are changed. They got three years of indoctrination now in 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 the land of Babel, And how do you think the city of Babylon looked at the height of its supremacy? It's glorious. It's glorious. I mean, it was nourished by the Euphrates River, and it was the largest city to ever have been built at this time in human history, up until this point. There had never been a city that was built this large. What was Nebuchadnezzar known for? He was known for the hanging gardens of Babylon. It was beautiful. It was the garden city. The crime would have been low. He ruled with an iron fist, so the streets were clean. There, there was a great temple to a Babylonian god, Marduk. And you've got to remember, this is 600 years before Christ. The temple was seven stories high. It was what they called a ziggurat, which you might have seen the, the pictures or paintings of them. They're laddered temples. The, ladder, the stairs go all the way up and wrap around. And these are temples that are designed to reach into the heavens and mimic mountains. Just like the Tower of Babel. That was there. It had an impressive skyline. The streets were lined with glazed bricks decorated with lions. The archaeologists tell us. The Ishtar Gate to the north of the city was glazed and decorated with dragons and bulls. The city was walled. Impressively so, and surrounding the walls was a moat because they, the, the Euphrates River went right through the city, and then the moat, they redirected part of the river so that the moat went around the city. So the Euphrates went through the city, and then there was a moat of redirected water from the Euphrates that went around the city. The city was protected. It was a virtual fortress, and then it was the splendid, majestic seat of Nebuchadnezzar's power. It's like going from downtown Kitchener to Dubai, right? You, you see the pictures of Dubai on the internet. What is it known for now? Clean, safe, people live, leave luxury vehicles with their keys in the ignition, walk away, don't feel free, that, don't feel like it's going to be stolen. People talk about this stuff, don't they? Well, this is comparing Jerusalem to Babylon. The only difference is Jerusalem was the city of God. This is the city of Satan. So so these men walk into this city, pristine, clean, hanging gardens, decorated, wealth, opulence, safe on the streets, run by Nebuchadnezzar. What do you think this would do to your view of God? The view of your religion that had been passed down to you from your forebearers. The Jews were demoralized and had just seen their temple sacked, and they had been ushered into the glorious city of Babylon at its height of prosperity, they would have thought, they would have been tempted to think that our religion, true religion, is over and Satan reigns. Satan's taken everything. There's nothing left. 
Satan has all the cards. Satan has all the chips. It's all there. Beautiful, glorious Babylon the Great. And to top it off, 135 years before, Assyria sacked the northern half of Israel, destroyed it, took all the people, and they basically all assimilated into the surrounding nation, into Assyria. So they were no longer Jews, they became Assyrians for the most part. Never came back to the land, 135 years before this. Well, who did Babylon replace as the dominant power? Babylon replaced Assyria as the dominant power. So, the people in the southern kingdom were just sacked. Jerusalem was just sacked by Babylon, who replaced Assyria as the dominant power. And Assyria had sacked and assimilated the entire population of the northern kingdom 135 years earlier. What's this telling us? Well, all signs are pointing to the fact that the history of the Jewish people is over. The worship of the one true God is over. And everything's been taken by Satan. I mean, if you were one of the people that say history repeats itself, then you would say for sure history is just repeating itself. And just as the northern kingdom was assimilated into Assyria, the southern kingdom is going to be assimilated into Babylon. It's just the way it's going. True religion is over. Christ will never come. God's law will never cover the face of the earth. It's done. Nebuchadnezzar reaches for God's people. And he has all the cards, and he's Satan's puppet. That's my first point. Second point, God's man resists. Comes down to one man now. The people are demoralized as God's people would be, but one man hasn't given up hope. And one man isn't having it. One man still has faith. There's still faith found on the earth. It, this ought to tell us something. Sometimes God takes things to the brink in the darkest of night and holds us there by a thread in order to teach us a lesson, but teach us to trust him. And God is literally holding on to his promises by a thread over a dark cliff right now. And one man is left. Daniel resists, and he resists in the most odd way possible by refusing to eat Nebuchadnezzar's food, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, there's lots of conjecture as to why he refused. The text doesn't tell us why he refused, other than it just says he refused in order not to defile himself. But let's hypothesize for a little bit, and I think there's some good reasons as to why he did refuse if you just sit there and ponder it for a minute. I mean, the Babylonians would have eaten food forbidden by the Old Testament law, but what about the wine? The wine wasn't forbidden by Old Testament law. Well, in Daniel 5, the wine is used to worship the foreign idols, the idols of Babylon. So they became drunk with wine in order to worship the idols. The food, however, I think more importantly, the food would have united him to the Babylonian elites, and he did not want to develop a taste for Babylon. What does food do? It unifies people. You go home today, you have lunch, people around your table, your family is around your table, maybe, or you're at someone's house, and, and what's there? There's food. You pass the butter, right? Pass the salt, pass the pickles. Can I have another slice of that ham? You're all eating from the same roast. You're all eating from the same loaf. You're all drinking from the same bottle. 
if, you're, if, the, if the wine's open. All of this stuff is being shared. There's a unifying element to this. There's a oneness to this. There's something that's going on. There's a fellowship to this. And so Daniel is stepping back from the situation, and he's like, I don't want to develop fellowship. I don't want to develop a taste for the fellowship that I could experience with the king of Babylon. This is a problem. The, the food is actually a bait and hook. It's bait, and there's a hook in the food. It's, it's going to give him a taste for the luxuries of Babylon. In fact, when the Hebrews left Egypt, which was the previous tyrannical kingdom controlled by Satan, what was the reason they wanted to turn back to Egypt once they got into the desert? They had a taste for the Egyptian food. Daniel didn't want to develop a taste for the kingdom of Babylon. Proverbs warns about this in Proverbs 23, verses 1 through 3, where it says, When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. The food was being used to sweeten the brainwashing. I'll give you really good food if you let me brainwash you. I will give you food that your taste buds have never imagined if you just let me brainwash you, if you just give me your heart. He's trying to get to their heart with their senses, in other words, appealing to the senses. And I remember where Daniel came from and where his friends came from. Where did they come from? They came from Jerusalem. And what do we know about Jerusalem by this point in history? These guys are only 16 years old. They, they saw Jerusalem at its lowest economically. So what do you, who do you think had better food at this period in history, the Babylonians or the Jews? The Babyl He'd never seen a meal like this. And the king brought it out, and it was a spread. I mean, you the smells... The appetite that this would have provoked within Daniel was enough to almost make you want to be brainwashed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And the feeling of importance to be at the table of this great eastern monarch who governed the greatest city that had ever been and the greatest kingdom that had ever existed, hanging gardens and all. So he knew... Daniel knew that he did not want to acquire a taste for Babylonian life, and he knew the old Hebrews acquired taste for Egyptian life, and that's what made them want to go back to Egypt once God liberated them from their slavery. So he didn't want to develop a taste for Babylon. John Calvin said of this text, Daniel abstained at first from the luxuries of the court to escape being tampered with. He was unwilling to cast himself into the snares of the devil while he voluntarily abstained from the royal diet. Unlike Eve, Daniel resisted the devil's offer for food. Like Jesus did in the desert, Daniel resisted the devil's offer for food. The devil goes for the sensual and Taste buds and textures are the sensual. And I think it's even more serious than you and I like to think, oh, he turned down some food. Big deal. No, hold on. I've done a little bit of foreign missionary work. 
And anyone that's ever done foreign missionary work or has gone into someone's house knows that it's rude to turn down food. You, you go to somebody's house and they offer you food and you're like, no, I, I don't want to defile myself with that food. That's rude. Never mind if you're going into the king's house. The greatest king that ever lived? King Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled the ancient Near East? Who had the city of Babylon with its hanging gardens and the river Euphrates running through it? I don't want to defile myself with that food. That, you know, that's, that's kind of rude, don't you think? That's a little on the rude side. And this is precisely what he does in verse 8. At the end of the verse, it says, Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. This, of course, provokes a crisis. One of the things is, you know, Daniel's not going to be able to control what the people in the court think, the royal court think, but he's going to control what they think about now. And guess what everyone's thinking about? Can you believe this guy just turned down the king's food? Who does he think he is? He doesn't want to defile himself with the king's food. Right? This howdy-towdy guy from Jerusalem thinks he's too good to eat Babylonian food. Have he, has he seen what we eat? We eat like kings after all. And he doesn't want that. He's too good for it, isn't he? Well, this provokes a crisis. And the chief satrap really likes Daniel. But the chief satrap, with his affection for Daniel, is afraid for his life. Look at verse 9 and 10. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. That gives you a little bit of insight into Nebuchadnezzar. If you don't eat my food, I'll kill you. It's not just, well, he says it to the satrap, the eunuch, the chief eunuch. If, if these guys don't eat my food, you're dead. By insinuation, Daniel's dead too. So this guy's concerned. He likes Daniel, but he likes his head a little bit more. So he doesn't want to die. By the way, what did God do with the Israelites in the desert when they complained about his food? He killed them. What's Nebuchadnezzar doing right here? He's essentially declaring himself to be God. You don't eat my food, you're dead. This is a tyrant. He should not be claiming himself to be God. Only God has the prerogative of life and death. And so this provokes a crisis. And you could imagine what the theologians of the day would have said to Daniel. I mean, Daniel, why don't you display a little bit of cultural sensitivity and store up some cultural capital for a real issue? Like food is what you're going to go down for? Food is what you're going to put your head on? Is this really the hill you want to die on, Daniel? You're in the Babylonian courts. I'm telling you, there's bigger issues out there than food. Just eat the food, store up some cultural capital, and get along with people so that when the real issues come, then you can actually take a stand. This is folly. Food? Really? You're going to offend the king of Babylon over food? What is your problem? And this is what you're going to have to decide, too. Satan will take a little before he takes a lot because he whittles down your conscience. I mean, do you really want to risk your job over a little measly rainbow flag on your desk? 
I mean, you know what the rainbow really means, don't you? It means Noah and the, fl the flood and peace on earth and all this stuff. You got the real me. Why don't you just put it on your desk? No big deal. Want to risk your reputation over something like that? Do you really want to let those people know what you really think? Or maybe you could just nuance your way out of it. You want to? Why not just kind of sugarcoat what you really think in this particular issue when your back's up against the wall. Is this really the hill you want to die on? Do you really want to lose your assets over that? I mean, and by the way, Daniel is a very young man with lots of potential. His whole life is ahead of him. What a waste. He's willing to die over food. Over food. Daniel provokes a crisis. And here's the question that's going through our mind right now if we're reading the story for the first time. Satan's taken Jerusalem. Satan's taken the temple's gold. Satan's taken the young men. Satan's taken their names. He's taken them as slaves. Satan's brainwashing them two years. Daniel's resisting. Is Satan going to take his life and snuff out the kingdom of God forever? It's all gone. Daniel resists. And we have a crisis on our hands. Well, let's look at the next point. Nebuchadnezzar reaches for God's people. God's man resists. And guess what happens? God preserves his people. God preserves his people. Daniel is wise. So he tactfully offers a solution to the satrap's fear of the king. Hey, let me try the new diet. Let me and my friends try the new diet for 10 days. And let's see if it makes a difference. What do you have to lose? Verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief priests of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, then let our appearances and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So, so let's give this new diet a shot, we'll eat our own food for ten days, and let's see what we look like at the end of two days. And then you be the judge of how we should proceed. Now it's interesting that he gives up all of these luscious foods of Babylon for vegetables. Did you notice that? Verse 12, test your servants for 10 days and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now the word vegetables here, John Gill notes, helpfully, the word used signifies anything sown, all kinds of roots, herbs, and fruits, seeds maybe too. But, but it, it is essentially a vegan diet that he's going on here with the exception of maybe some seeds too. And the satrap agrees. He's kind of scratching his head at this point. Really? You want to eat vegetables over this? But verse 14, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And that's a long 10 days. Do you think Daniel was wondering what was going to happen to his head at the end of 10 days? Am I going to die? Are you wondering that? Like, is he going to die? Is God's kingdom going to be snuffed out? Is God's man going to be killed? Is it all over for the Jews in the Babylonian court? Ten days go by. Suspense builds for ten days. Day one, day two, day three, what's going to happen? Day four, day five, day six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Satan's already taken so much. Do you think he's going to take Daniel too? What about his friends? Strangely enough, by the time you get to verse 15, all is well. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Miracle of miracles. Now, some will look at this, and what they'll do 
is they'll use this to justify some type of vegan diet and all the health benefits associated with it. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is they ate like vegans and it's a miracle, they're healthy. <laughs> now that's literally the point. God actually preserved them. And not only are they healthy, but they actually have some gains. They bulked up. They're better in appearance despite what they ate. And they're fatter in flesh. It actually says they're fatter in flesh. Nobody expects you to get some gains on the vegan diet. But that's exactly what happened. I mean, a lot's gone on here, you know. The kingdom's been lost. Jerusalem's been sacked. The temple's been robbed. The best men have been stolen. They've been sent to indoctrination camp for three years. And now, guess what? They've had their names changed. Satan's taking ground. Satan's taking ground. Satan's taking ground. Satan's taking ground. And Daniel just lays it all on the line. And God, by this simple act, shows up and demonstrates that, yes, God is in control and he's going to preserve his people through this simple miracle. Now, verses 17 through 20 are very ironic. The irony is that the ones who refuse loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar show themselves better than all of Nebuchadnezzar's most faithful men. They show themselves better. Nebuchadnezzar likes them better than all of Nebuchadnezzar's men. These were the guys that showed disloyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. So everything's now flipped on its head in verses 17 through 20. Look at verse 19. Let me just read it. For example, And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were all in his kingdom, or in all his, his old kingdom. And, and then in verse 21, what happens is Daniel becomes a fixture in ancient Near Eastern politics for the better part of 50 years, despite his lack of loyalty for the king, because it says in verse 21, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, which was over 50 years later. Fifty years Daniel remained a fixture in the ancient heathen courts. The royal courts of the ancient heathen empires, unflinching in his devotion to God. Despite the fact that he and his three buddies were the most disloyal to Nebuchadnezzar in the food test, Nebuchadnezzar found them to be the most useful men. This whole thing was a battle between God and Nebuchadnezzar, and God won. It was a showdown. The whole book of Daniel is a showdown. Ding, ding, ding. Daniel, God wins round one. Round one goes to God. But you know what? Just as it looked like Satan had been used or had been using Nebuchadnezzar to take control of the world, to take all of God's stuff, we find out that God's actually in control. And that shouldn't surprise you. And the reason it shouldn't surprise you is because you should have been paying attention to the text of Scripture all along. Let me explain. Well, you look at verse 17, and what does it tell us? Is for these four youths, God gave them learning. Who gave them learning? God did. 
God's been in control all along. And you go up to verse 9. And what's it say? And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Who gave Daniel favor and compassion, sympathy from the chief of the eunuchs? God gave it to them. And then lo and behold, go all the way back up to verse 2. And what do we find about this terrible event that has taken place in Jerusalem? Verse 2, and the Lord gave King or Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand, into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Who's been in control of this whole scene? God. God gave Jerusalem over to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave the gold over to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave the young men over to Nebuchadnezzar. God exalted Nebuchadnezzar. God is the one that's been orchestrating this entire thing for the good of his people. And just when he brings it down to the wire, he decides to flex for the first time in generations. They've watched nothing but cultural decline. Nothing but the depletion of their economy. Nothing but the corruption of their government. Nothing but foreign invasion and their wealth being sent to international organizations in Babylon. Nothing but shame and embarrassment and shame and embarrassment and shame and embarrassment. And we find out, if we've been paying attention all along, that God has been in control of the whole thing because he's using the entire thing for the theater of his glory to refine his people, to care for his people, and to exalt his people in the end. The whole thing. It's all of God. All of God. The God who gave Israel... Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar is the God who is going to triumph over Nebuchadnezzar. In this little flex, this little miracle of making a vegan look plump and healthy is the first crack in Nebuchadnezzar's armor. And it's the first sign that God's going to win. He's been in control the whole time. The contest between the kingdom of Christ and the antichrist kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar has gone through round one. And God won. And the funny thing is about God winning is that Nebuchadnezzar didn't even know it. Like this whole thing is kept from him. Daniel knows it. The chief eunuch knows it. Daniel's buddies know it. Everyone in the court that knew what's going on knew it. The chefs knew it. You and I knew it. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't even know it. So much does, not, does Nebuchadnezzar not even know it that he takes these four guys, Daniel and his three buddies, and he brings them right into his inner circle and he shows them more favor than any of his other servants. He doesn't have a clue. But we all do, so the joke's on him. God sits in the heavens and laughs. And Daniel and his buddies, the rebels, are being exalted right underneath Nebuchadnezzar's nose. Look, we don't win the war by compromise. We win by being inflexible and uncompromising is we cast ourselves on our all-merciful God who is in control of all things. The same God that makes vegans look plump is the God who rose Christ from the dead and is the God who's caring for us right now. And he can be trusted. You can trust him. 
you can trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope that you have or that you have given us from your word, that you are in control of all things, that you love your people, you care for your people, and you see us through the darkness, and that you in the end will triumph. We thank you for the little victories that the enemy doesn't see, and we rejoice in these. In Christ's name, amen.